Please uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. While you're turning there, I'll tell you that I had the privilege uh, yesterday afternoon with uh, Frank Robleski of uh, hearing Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is an astrophysicist, speak at the Emerson Center. Fascinating conversation, and what he wanted to do in his discussion was give those who were there the astrophysicist's perspective on the cosmos. And the way he did that was by looking through various lenses, the lens of the biologist, the lens of the engineer, the lens of the chemist, the lens of this person, that person, the one lens that he fatally failed to acknowledge is the lens of the Creator God. And so it's through that lens that we want to look for just a few minutes this morning. Who are we? What are people for? Where do they fit in the vast expanse of the cosmos? Verse 5 of Genesis 2. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then at verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Please help us as we think about it. And as we think about it, encourage the hearts of your people. We ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. We've been looking at Romans chapter 8, and particularly at verses 18 to 25 over the last couple of weeks, and even more particularly the last 
couple of weeks, we've been looking at our own future. We've been looking at our future. Not the immediate future, but our future future. A future that we think is far off, but a future which could be here in a matter of seconds. A future which could be here at any moment. What I'm thinking of, of course, is the end of history. The return of Jesus Christ. A return that could occur before I finish this sentence. And it didn't. But it could have. The end of history and what comes after the end of history. We've looked at the fact that the creation is groaning and longing, and we are groaning and we are longing. And what Paul is telling us in Romans 8 is that that groaning is going to cease. The groaning is going to end. The longing is going to end. The anguish that the creation feels, this is verse 22 of Romans 8, the anguish that the creation feels, an anguish like a mother in labor, the pains, the contractions, the discomfort, it's going to end. And we ourselves who are groaning and waiting for the redemption of our bodies, longing for the redemption of our bodies, those longings will be satisfied. That groaning is going to end. You ever think about how many people are going to be put out of work by the return of Jesus Christ? I'll be 61, April 17th. For the first time in my life, I'm visiting a chiropractor. And he's taken pictures of my spine and I've got some bends and twists that aren't supposed to be there and it's resulted in some back pain and I'm going to a chiropractor. I don't think Matt is here this morning. I was hoping that he would be because I wanted to apologize to him and say, Matt, I'm sorry, but when Jesus comes back, you're out of work. You're finished. You're done. The groaning is going to cease. Famine is going to end. Hurricanes are going to stop. Earthquakes will be no more. Tornadoes will be a thing of the past. The creation is in anguish. My body is in anguish. And it's going to end. That's what we've been thinking about. But here's the question. What is it going to be like when it comes to an end? What is it going to be like when the anguish is over, when the groaning is finished? What is going to be true for me? Here's what I've come to conclude about myself. I can't say this is true about you, but I've come to conclude this about myself. I think way too much about the here and now and way too little about the there and then. I think way too much about the here and now, the penultimate thing. And way too little about the ultimate things, the things to come. Think way too little about what earth is going to look like and what life is going to be like. I think way too little about what I'm going to be doing in 10,000 years or a million years 
or septillion years. I learned that yesterday. You know what a septillion is? Depending on whether you're an American person or a British person, it is either 1 times 10 to the 27th power or 1 times 10 to the 42nd power. It's a lot of zeros. It's, it's like a trillion times a trillion with a bunch of zeros still left over. What am I going to be doing in a trillion years? I think way too little about that. Now, I'm not entirely sure. Because I'll be honest with you, the Scriptures really and truly give us precious little in the way of specific information about what it is that we're going to be doing. But at least a beginning to an answer to the question, what am I going to be doing in a trillion years or a septillion years? At least the beginnings of an answer can be found by looking back instead of looking forward. And that's what I want to do. I want to take a look back. I want to go back to the beginning of the story, the beginning of this whole thing, and ask, what are people for? What do they do? What did they do? And is there in any sense at all a sense in which we can look back to see what people did, see what people are for, in anticipation of what people might be doing in the new earth when the curse is lifted, when our bodies are redeemed? So let me invite you to think about this in terms of a few mandates or a few commissionings, or a few duties, if you will. What are people for? What did they do? What was life about for them? Well, here's the first. The first mandate was the mandate to work. At least it's the first in my list. The first mandate was a mandate to work, or to or to protect the creation. Work the ground. Protect the ground. Read verses 5 and following again. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Nobody to work the ground. Then God creates the man, and he creates the man, as we know. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago out of some basic material stuff, but then he breathes into him the breath of life, this animating force that enables this dead and lifeless, this inanimate material thing to live and and to act and to think and to move. Body and soul, that is what a human being is. More than just material. You can't get, I'm not, look, I'm not picking fights here, okay? But you can't get the modern scientific community to acknowledge that. And in not acknowledging that, they cannot account for a passion that we have for just things and righteous things and good things and true things. Those things are just functions of neurological and biochemical interactions. 
If you happen to think one thing is just and another thing is compassionate, great, that's fine. But when I put my pistol to your head, you have nothing to fall back on. No ultimate reality other than your own material existence to which you appeal for your sense of what is right and what is wrong. You've got to think about this stuff. And when people press you about this thing and challenge you about this thing that you believe, this gospel of Jesus Christ, the existence of the infinite, eternal, tri-personal God who is really there, don't be afraid to press back and ask questions. Where does your sense of ultimate reality rest? In yourself? In bare materiality? It's just not big enough to account for what is there. God created human beings, body and soul, breathed into them this animating principle. And it is that animating principle that distinguishes them from every other thing in the whole of the creation. And God then, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do these two things, to work it and to keep it. Now, I want to unpack this a little bit more. We alluded to it last week. But I want to unpack it. Here's what gets lost in most of the translations. The Hebrew word that is translated work has strong connotations, strong connotations of serving. Serving. And the word translated keep has strong connotations of protecting. It's a beauty of language. Language is a beautiful thing. I love how words work. And I love how when you're trying to take something from one language and give expression to it in another language, sometimes you have to come up with phrases to capture and encompass the whole of what is going on in the word. And that's what's necessary here. You need to say, and God placed the man, put him in the garden to work, serve, keep, protect the ground, the garden. To work it, to serve it, to keep it, to protect it. So here's a question. As you contemplate yourself, as you consider yourself, and as you consider the material world around you, the world in which you live, how do you as a Christian... Now look, there's a theology of the environment in this, folks. There is a theology of the environment in this. Properly understood, I am the world's best tree hugger. How do you understand the material world, the world in which you live? How do you understand trees and rivers and fish and chickens and air? And how especially do you understand other people? How do you think of work? Do you think, do you think of the creation simply as a commodity? Simply as something to be manipulated. Something simply to be manipulated for your own ends. Something to be used. Now the creation is something to be managed, to be sure. It is something to serve as I work it and manage it. 
and manipulated. I remember flying over Orlando a number of years ago. Coming in, you usually, when you fly into Orlando, you land from the north. And on the north side of Orlando are suburbs spread out across the landscape below. But on this particular return to Orlando, we flew to the south and landed heading in the northern direction. And as we're flying over Orlando, south of Orlando, I looked out my window and I looked down at the ground and there was green everywhere except this one spot that had been scraped clean and there were these little ribbons of concrete just sort of running through this thing that had just been scraped clean. I thought, I'm not sure that's the way things are supposed to be. remember visiting the Biltmore. Some of you have been there. You've been there maybe several times. I've been there a couple of times, the Biltmore up in Asheville, North Carolina. Maybe you've been to the little museum thing downstairs that talks about the building of this this lavish chalet-like home. You You remember seeing the pictures of the mountains of western North Carolina deforested so that one man can build his chalet? I just don't think that's the way things are supposed to be. People have to live in houses. I don't care how big the house is. That doesn't really matter to me. The question is, how do I view this world in which I live? How do I view animals? Proverbs 12.10. Some of you know this because you've quoted it to me. Listen to this. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast. But the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Now, here's an interesting thing, a couple of interesting things. The word translated, Proverbs 12.10, for beast is a generic term. But very, very often in the Old Testament, it is used with respect to domestic animals, to your, to your pet lamb, to your, your pet ox, to your horse, to your dog, to your cat. Whoever has regard for his beast is viewed as righteous by the Bible. And here's the other thing. This is really staggering. The word that's translated regard is the basic Hebrew verb that means to know. It's the word that is used to describe Adam in his relationship to Eve. Adam knew his wife and conceived and gave birth to a son. The knowing is not a detached, impersonal knowing about. There is some connection, some relationship, some recognition of the value of the thing known. The righteous one has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. If the righteous have regard for the lives of their beasts, how... Do the righteous view other human beings? Some of you have read Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. It's a great read. Great read. Tim talks in this book about Andrew Carnegie. You all know 
the name Andrew Carnegie, United States Steel became the most profitable business enterprise in the world. And some of you know that Carnegie built libraries, over 2,000 of them. But here's what a biographer writes, including a piece from an interview. Although Carnegie built 2,059 libraries, a steel worker, speaking for many, told an interviewer, we didn't want him to build a library for us. We would rather have had higher wages. At that time, steel workers worked 12-hour shifts on floors so hot they had to nail wooden platforms under their shoes. Every two weeks, they toiled an inhuman 24-hour shift and then got their sole day off. The best housing they could afford was crowded and filthy. Most died in their 40s or earlier from accidents or disease. How do I view the world in which I find myself? As an employer? As a business owner? As a human being on this planet alongside other human beings? The man, together with his wife, were placed in the garden to work slash serve. Now look, we're not deifying the creation. We're not making a God out of the creation. We're not making a God out of other human beings. But what the Bible does for us is assign a value, a worth, a dignity to everything that God has made because everything finds its ultimate meaning and significance in God himself and frankly cannot be understood apart from God himself. Now here's a really interesting thing. These two words, and this just absolutely puts the last, that's bad metaphor, puts the last nail in the coffin to this argument. These two words that appear in verse 15 also appear in Numbers 18. And this is extraordinarily significant because these two words, to work and to protect the garden, that was Adam's commissioning. That was his assignment to work and care for and protect and defend the garden. Those two words are used in Numbers 18 to describe what it is that the Levitical priests are to do. So let me read it just so you have the words and then make the connection. The Lord God said to Aaron, you and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary, and you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And with you bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of testimony. They shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent. They shall join you and keep guard over the tent for all of the service of the tent, and no outsider shall come near you. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of God. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meaning. Do you hear that? The priests 
are commissioned to do the very same thing with respect to the tent of meeting, with respect to the worship of God that Adam and Eve are commissioned to do in the garden. Work, serve, defend, protect. What's the connection? The creation is the original sanctuary. And Adam and Eve are the original priests. And the creation is to be a habitation for the glory of God, just as the tent of meeting in microcosm was to be a habitation for the glory of God. What is it to be a human being? It is to be a priest of the God of heaven and earth. To tend, to care for, to serve the tabernacle that he fills with his glory. That's how we're to view the creation. It is not God, but it is the habitation of God. And all of it together reflects, is expressive of his beauty, his glory, the wonder of his person. And when the man and the woman back in Genesis chapter 1 are commissioned to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. What the man and the woman are commissioned to do is press more and more widely, ever more widely, the beauty of the garden so that the glory of God may eventually fill the whole of the tabernacle that he has appointed for himself that he might dwell in it. That's what it is to be a human being. To be a human being is to be a priest. Male, female, young, old, parent, child, pastor, parishioners, all together working, serving, tending, caring for the creation that the glory of God might extend to the whole of the creation. What's your place in the universe? Ah, this is spectacular. One of the shots that Dr. Tyson showed us was from the Hubble telescope of Saturn. And I don't know how they did this. Somebody's going to have to do the math for me because I can't. But somehow captured in that image of Saturn, way, way off is this little bitty speck floating out in the midst of space. And that little bitty speck is the planet Earth, the place of the original temple, the place where the glory of God is to dwell in all of its fullness uniquely and spectacularly in the midst of the whole cosmos. Ah, it's beautiful stuff. Here's a second thing, a second mandate. It's the mandate to discover. The mandate to discover the mandate to engage this creation, to discover this creation, to unpack this creation and understand all of the intricacies and interconnectednesses of this creation. It's the mandate to do science. Where do you find it? You find it in Genesis 2. Verses 18 and following. The Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone, to which every man has always said, Amen. And so God forms out of the ground every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brings them to the man to see what he would call them. To see what he would call them. Very interesting language. 
not what name he would give to them, but what he would call them. Here's what was going on. You see it actually expressed in the text. As Adam went around the garden identifying things, differentiating things, distinguishing things, he was engaged in the business of taxonomy. That is the business of giving names to things. Again, differentiating one thing from another and identifying things. That is the work of science. But he does it in this way. He gives a name to the thing that corresponds to the nature of the thing. How do I know he did that? Because he did it with his wife. He gave a name to his wife. Woman. Which means taken from man. Don't, don't. We'll talk about it later. We'll talk about it later. If you've got issues with egalitarianism and stuff like that, we can talk. We'll talk, okay? But just for right now, recognize that Adam gave a name to the woman that corresponded to what she was, that she was taken from the man. Later in chapter 4, he gave her another name, the name Eve, which comes from the Hebrew verb to be. She is the mother of all living. The name corresponds to the reality. They aren't arbitrary things. The names have meaning because the thing has meaning. Giving names to things discovering things, uncovering things. Think about how it works across the whole of Scripture. Who is Jesus? He is Joshua, which comes from the Hebrew redeem. Names are not arbitrary. They have meaning and they correspond to things as they are. So what is the work of, of serving the creation? What is the work of protecting and defending the creation? It's the work of discovering the beauties of the creation. I, I heard a, a lecture years ago. It was an interview, actually. It wasn't a lecture with an author named Christoph Wolf. He wrote a biography of Johann Sebastian Bach. And in the biography, Wolf talks about the fact that Bach understood his craft, the craft of composing, not so much as the work of creating, but rather as the work of discovering. When he signed every piece of music, whether written for the church or written for secular society, he signed every piece, soli, deo, gloria, solely to the glory of God. And he understood his craft, not so much as a craft of invention or creation, but as a craft of discovery. There is music in this universe. There are tunes and harmonies and motifs. And Bach's whole pursuit and life passion was to discover the intricacies of those beauties. That's what it is to be a human being. That's what it is to tend and care for the garden. And here's a third mandate. It's the mandate to enjoy. It's the mandate to enjoy. Look, I know, I know we are a hedonistic and pleasure-driven and narcissistic and self-absorbed culture. I get that. Because I'm the president of that nation. 
But, as theologians have long argued, abuse is not an argument against right use. And the man and the woman were created to work, to serve, to protect and defend the garden, to discover its beauties, unpack its lovelinesses, and then enjoy what they had discovered. The invitation in chapter 1, we didn't read it, but the invitation in chapter 1 is the invitation to eat from every tree of the garden. Here it is. Have at it. It's all yours to enjoy. Restrictions? Yes. Restrictions? Yes. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of it, you'll die. Stay away from that tree. But of every tree in the garden, you may freely eat. I mentioned this in the inquirer's class this morning. I've mentioned it before, but let me mention it again. When God created his garden, his garden was pulsating with life. Pulsating with life. His garden was lavish in life. One apple tree produces how many apples? Dozens, scores, hundreds, if it lives long enough, thousands of apples. How many seeds from all of those apples produced by that one apple tree? How many seeds do you need to populate the whole of the earth, given the right environment, given enough time, populate the whole of the earth with apple trees? One. One. God so packs life even into the smallest of seeds that the smallest produces lavish abundance. And here is the invitation. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. And then here's the last thing. One final mandate. As image bearers, what were they to do? They were to produce little gardeners. They were to produce little gardeners. Little boys and little girls who would grow up to be men and women who would be discoverers, who would be defenders and protectors of this beautiful habitation in which God was pleased for all of his glory to dwell. Little boys and little girls who would grow up to be men and women who would be workers, nurturers, cultivators, discoverers, those who would unpack and unlock the beauties and the mysteries and the wonders of this glorious creation. And in doing that, as they themselves then became grandparents, giving birth to little Lucys all over the place. The glory of God would extend farther and farther and farther and farther until it filled the whole earth. And all the while, God is lavishing upon his creation more and more of the fullness of his own beauty and his own glory. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And at the center of the whole of it, and this is the 
it's just staggering in its, in its beauty. The thing that is at the center of the whole of it is the infinite personal triune God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, whose great pleasure is that these creatures of his might delight in him, in the beauty of his presence for all eternity. Now, I know that sounds rather static and theological, but let me suggest another book title to you. Get a hold of Timothy Keller's book, King's Cross, and read the first chapter and listen to him as he does this marvelous job of describing the glorious dance that exists from all eternity among the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And how the Father loves to delight in the Son. How the Father loves the beauty of the Son. And how the Son loves the beauty of the Father and delights in the Father. And how the Holy Spirit likes nothing better than to exalt the beauty and loveliness of the Father and the Son. And how their mutual delight and joy and their mutual other-centeredness creates an environment of joy and blessedness and happiness. And it's almost as though the God of heaven and earth says, there is so much joy and happiness here, we've got to create something so that others can enjoy it. And once you've read Keller, then do the hard work of reading Jonathan Edwards, read his essay entitled, The End for Which God Created the World, and hear Edwards say, This is why God created the world. So that he might distribute on the objects of his love the joy of his own existence. I guess I went too long. Let me say it again. This is a summary of Edwards' essay the end for which God created the world. See if you can wrap your minds around this. The end for which God created the world is simply this, that he might distribute upon the objects of his affection the joy of his own existence. That is what you as a Christian have been invited into. That is what the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased for you. When he says, John 10.10, I have come that they might have life and have it in all of its pulsating and lavish abundance. That's what he's talking about. That you are invited into the dance that has existed from all eternity among the persons of the Godhead a dance so filled with joy that they create the world so that the overflow of their joy might gather up into its very presence those whom they love, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. What are we going to be doing in the new earth? I'm not entirely sure, but it's going to be an earth. It's going to be physical and it's going to be material. And I don't know exactly what the stuff is that we're going to do, but we're going to do stuff. And at the center of it will be the beauty and glory of the God who has made and redeemed us. And that is what people are for.